Well, please turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 16. If you're new here, my name is Dave Furman. I serve as a senior pastor here at the church. And over the past several weeks, we've been looking at this first book of the Bible, Genesis. If you don't have a Bible with you today, you'll find the words on the screens uh, behind me. And we've been studying the life of the first patriarch, Abram. We'll see today that his name officially gets changed from Abram to Abraham in chapter 17. It's been hard for me to keep his name straight. I'll try my best today to call him Abram and his wife Sarai until their names are changed to Abraham and Sarah. Now Hebrews chapter 11 calls Abram a man of faith who trusted in God's word and acted in accordance to it. However, he has a tendency to go from believing to doubting or from faith to faithlessness rather quickly. By faith, he leaves home. He leaves everything behind in Genesis chapter 12. But then we see that he offers his wife as a concubine to Pharaoh in Egypt. Later, he rescues Lot from danger, but soon he struggles with doubt again and he asks God, are are you sure you're going to do what you promised? Are you sure this is all going to happen, God? And he wavers between faith and faithlessness. When last week's sermon, we saw God lay out a unilateral, unconditional covenant when he passed through the pieces of animal carcasses in Genesis 15. In that moment, he's making a promise, and he tells Abram that he'll provide the promised land and descendants through him. And he paints this vivid picture of what will happen to him if he fails. And God says, if I fail to keep my covenant, let me be cut off. Let me be cut up. Let me be destroyed. You can imagine the elation of Abram's heart when he fully understands that God will do what he's promised. God will make a new people and a new society out of his descendants, and he will give them land. Like a roller coaster of ups and downs, Abram's faith has been staggering. One minute he's up and faithful, another minute he's faithless and struggling. Today we'll find more of the same. I have one main point that we'll see traced out in our chapters of Scripture. So one point if you're taking notes, and the main point is this. Listen to and trust in the voice of the Lord and not the voice of this world. Let me repeat that again. Trust in, let me me back up, listen to and trust in, listen to and trust in the voice of the Lord and not the voice of this world. That's the, the main overarching point, the one point that we see woven through the scripture this morning. Let's begin reading together in chapter 16, verse 1. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And Sarai said to Abram, 
May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. And then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. Now at this time, Abram and Sarai, they'd been in Canaan for 10 years, and Sarai is 75 years old. Her barrenness was a tragedy in their culture. What would happen to this family? Who would run the family business? To whom would their family name pass on? And Sarai realized her time was running out. In fact, it had run out long ago. She knew God's promise. She didn't understand how God would make it happen. You put yourself in her shoes. She's well beyond childbearing years. God had told her 10 years earlier that she's going to have a child. But nothing's happened. One month goes by. Another month goes by. Pretty soon 10 years go by. God has not given her a baby. So they think God hasn't made good on his promise. Apparently the promised seed of the woman from Genesis chapter 3 would not be coming through this woman. And so she decides to take things into her own hands by following an ancient custom where she could have a child through her servant. Now this may surprise you, but this was actually a common legal and culturally acceptable practice. A servant wasn't just someone who cleans your tent or cooks meals. No, the reason why Hagar's children would be Sarai's children is because Hagar is owned by Sarai. She's her slave. And so any child would belong to her master, Sarai. That's why she's able to say legally, well, perhaps I can have a child through her. It's interesting to note that Sarai never speaks directly to Hagar or speaks her name. Hagar is simply a tool to relieve Sarai's embarrassment and doubt. The culture said it's okay, and Sarai went for it. The plan would have been acceptable for everyone, except for the only one whose opinion really matters, God himself. There's an ironic reversal here of what happened down in Egypt. Their faithless Abram had given Sarai over to the Egyptian pharaoh, and now in Canaan, faithless Sarai gives Abram over to her Egyptian servant. It's important to listen to and trust in the voice of the Lord and not the voice of this world. That'll preach here in Dubai, won't it? I mean, friends, just because the world says it's okay doesn't mean it's okay. A man once told me how much easier it is to do his job here in Dubai. He said, Pastor, it's so easy to do my job here because here I'm allowed to be mean to people and to bully them. He talked about how in his home country he could never do such things, but here in his job it was fine. It's acceptable practice. I remember thinking, well, it may be okay to your boss that you yell at people, belittle them over email, threaten them, but you serve a higher authority who tells you to love your neighbors. I've heard people say in the city that, hey, I'm in debt, but it's okay because everyone's in debt. Everyone has it. It's just kind of the way of Dubai. 
I've heard people say, well, you've got to cheat, you've got to lie just to get ahead, or you've got to cheat the system just to get your papers in order. It's the way we do it here. As if the culture opens the doors to our actions and behavior. But we can't take our cues from culture. We can't take our cues from what's happening around us and, and not from the Bible. We likely have 50 different nationalities present here today in this church service. Different families, different backgrounds. We all contribute wonderful things to the world. And I, I know we all get a sense of how special it is when we gather together, don't we? I've heard many of us say, and I certainly hear visitors say, every time they come to one of our worship gatherings, how it's a little foretaste of heaven every time we gather together. It's a little picture of what will happen around the heavenly throne when we gather from all tribes and tongues and nations and worship God together. Now, our diversity here is exquisitely beautiful. But we have a common problem. Regardless of where we're from, each and every one of us needs to have our minds renewed by the word of God. Just because people in your home country or even your family believe and behave in a certain way and give in to a certain situation doesn't mean that God is pleased with it. No, we are Christians. We who are Christians, we are born into a new humanity in Jesus Christ. We are ransomed with the precious blood of an innocent Savior. We are filled with his Holy Spirit. We are redeemed out of a perverse and wicked generation. And so we as Christians, we look to the book. We look to this book to give us direction. We look to this book to give us wisdom. We look to this book as our guide, as our standard, as our plumb line. We look to this book to inform our behavior. We look to this book to inform everything about ourselves. Well, since our example here in our passage is marriage, let's take that for an example for a moment. I met a man recently who told me that in his home culture, it's actually okay for Christian men to have two wives. He said everyone does it, not only in the culture, but even in the church. It's an acceptable practice. It's really not that big of a deal, he said. Now, this is an example of something that may be acceptable in the world, but certainly not fitting for the way of the disciples of Jesus Christ. Well, Genesis 2, Matthew 19. Both those chapters say that a man and a wife singular should be joined together as one flesh. That marriage has always been between two individuals, man and woman. And that something miraculous happens when they get married and consummate the marriage. That you become one. That two miraculously become one flesh. A physical intimacy is not something to be taken lightly and to treat as a hobby outside of marriage. It's to be confined to the God-ordained institution of marriage. So we don't commit adultery. We don't treat divorce as an unfortunate but wonderful fallback in case things don't work out. And if we've been divorced, we're in communication with the elders of the church to see if we're even biblically eligible to get married again. Now you see why we shouldn't concern ourselves as much with our home culture, but with distinctly Christian culture? If Jesus Christ is your Lord, then you're a citizen of his kingdom, and so we live according, not to the world's standards, but according to his heavenly standards. 
Oh, friends, listen to and trust in the voice of the Lord and not the voice of this world. Now, in our story, Abraham and Sarai, they live according to earthly culture and things go downhill fast. They veered away from the voice of the Lord and from biblical culture and instead they've listened to the voice of the world. And we see that disaster strikes. Sarai offers Abram her servant. And how does he respond? What's Abram going going to do? Look again at the end of verse 2. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. That sentence just takes our breath away. Here's the man of faith. And we want so badly for this man of faith to follow the voice of the Lord. But instead we get those words of indictment. Abram listened to the voice of his wife. This is exactly a word-for-word translation that's said in Genesis 3 when it says, Adam listened to the voice of his wife. In other words, Abram is failing not just because he listened to his wife, but because he's doing the same thing that Adam did. What is it? Well, you see, these two women, Eve and Sarai, are two approaches to the blessing. If Abram follows God's promise of a son through Sarai, then he's going to have to receive it as an act of grace. He's going to have to wait for a miracle because he can't have children on his own. Or he can listen to his wife and try to take it into his own hands. It's a parallel account to the fall in the garden. Moses seems to be deliberately using the same language. He wants to make sure that we as the reader don't miss out on what's happening here. Here, Abram listened to his wife, just as Adam listened to his wife. Here, Sarai took Hagar, just as Eve took the fruit. Here, Sarai gave Hagar to her husband, just as Eve gave the fruit to hers. And in both cases, the men willingly and knowingly partook without even questioning their wives' discernment. And in both cases, both cases, both parties, both husband and wife are accountable for their sin. And I'm going to say this over and over and over again this morning because I want it to go from your head down to your heart. Oh, friends, listen to and trust in the voice of the Lord and not the voice of this world. We see that Abram listens to the voice of this world. He agrees with his wife that the culture is more trustworthy than God's word. And at least momentarily he forgets or neglects God's promise. And he takes the situation into his own hands and he gets Hagar pregnant. This situation is incredibly ugly. There's more we could pick out of the text simply through observation. Normally the girl's father gave the woman to be married. But here Sarai, Abram's wife, gives her away to her own husband. And Hagar, a servant, is not asked her opinion. Her family's not consulted. She's merely taken and forced to marry Abram. She has no legal say in the matter. She's taken and given away like a piece of soulless property to be used. It's like eating a disgusting, rotten piece of food. The story leaves a terrible taste in our mouths. And instead of solving the problem, it gets even worse. Verses 5 and 6 speak of utter disaster. Hagar gets pregnant and she begins to despise Sarai. Did you notice that? 
She now has some status. Before she was treated like an object, the baby machine. But now she's proud. She's carrying the patriarch's child and her conniving master Sarai is not. Maybe she even did her best to show off her new rounded profile just to rub it in. Now Sarai couldn't take it. She erupted in anger and jealousy and first she passes the blame off to Abram. Again, we notice a similarity to Adam and Eve. She's clearly out of her mind. The cost of Sarai's human engineering is to watch Hagar give birth to and raise a child for her husband. What seemed like a good idea to her in the past certainly has blown up in her face. What she thought was going to bring her ultimate satisfaction only leads to her destruction. This substituting Hagar for her brought temporary comfort. But friends, this is what happens when people of faith begin to distrust God's word. When people take things in their own hands and decide that God needs help in fulfilling his word. This is what happens when we fail to listen to and trust in the voice of the Lord and instead look to the voice of this world as our guide. Now, doing things our own way may bring temporary relief. It may bring you temporary happiness. It may bring you temporary peace. But ultimately, it only compounds your problems. Abram and Sarah, they were living by sight and looking to the world to bring what only God could bring. Now, friend, if you don't live daily by faith, then you'll cheat on your business deals, thinking that your actions will fix the problem. But friend, wait on the Lord. If you don't live daily by faith, you'll look at pornography and go back again and again to take what's not supposed to be yours. Instead of waiting on marriage or finding satisfaction within marriage. Oh friend, wait on the Lord. If you don't live daily by faith as a single, you might be tempted to reach out in desperation and take something that's not yours. Oh friend, wait on the Lord. If you don't live by faith, you'll live in constant anxiety over every aspect of your life and your children's lives. A friend, wait on the Lord. If we don't live by faith, we'll start looking for shortcuts to obtain what we think we deserve. We start living according to our our own timeline. A trouble always begins when the people of God start distrusting the word of God. We know what it says. We've read it. We've heard the word preached. But then we go about our week living as if God's not in control. We know in our minds that God's word is true, but then we go about living our lives as if his word is merely good advice. Now, there's a pastor who lived in the the 19th century named Philip Brooks. You may never have heard of him, but at Christmas time, we sing one of the songs that he wrote called, O Little Town of Bethlehem. Now, Brooks was known for being a godly and pious man. He loved Jesus very much. And once a man walked into his office and Philip Brooks was there just pacing back and forth in his office with a real distressed look in his face, a real anxious, angry look in his face. And this man, upon walking in, asked Brooks, what's wrong? Why are you so distressed? And Brooks responded, I'm in a hurry, but God isn't. We don't like being patient, do we? 
We don't like it when God doesn't act on our, our own timeline. That's the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5 that we actually don't like. I don't know how often each of us actually prays, Oh God, make me more patient. It's a prayer we don't like to pray. No love, joy, peace. Now those are good. I'll pray for some love, pray for some joy, pray for some peace. I want to experience those, but not patience. Now the word patience brings to our minds the same feeling in us as when we hear the words milk of magnesia or Pepto-Bismol or some disgusting medicine that we have to take that in the end of the day will help us. But we don't like to receive it. Now patience is the ability to suffer. It's to bear up underneath and to wait. It's to suffer long. Now God told Abram that his descendants would be like the stars in the sky. He took him out and showed him his descendants. He even walked through the dead animal carcasses to give Abram that vivid picture of an unconditional promise. And yet Abram couldn't wait. He thought perhaps, well I have waited. It's been ten years. Oh friend, if you're waiting for something good... I can't promise that God will provide for you in the exact way you want. God is not like FedEx, doesn't quite deliver according to our time schedule. But he is timely. There are reasons behind his quiet. But I can promise you this. If you try and get whatever you're wanting on your own apart from God, you will only cause harm to yourself and to others. Sarah tried to help God out, but God didn't need her help. And God doesn't need our help either. So how should Abram have responded? How should he respond at this point in the story? He's messed up. What should he do? Well, Abram should have accepted the full blame and responsibility. He should have manned up and been a man. He should have repented. But instead, what does he do? Well, he washes his hands of the outcome, doesn't he, there in verse 6. He says to Sarai, well, she's still your slave. That hasn't changed. Treat her like a slave. Do whatever you want to her. It looks like Sarai takes his advice, mistreats her. We don't know exactly what that meant, but it's the same Hebrew word there that's used to describe what the Egyptians did to the Israelite slaves in Egypt when they couldn't make bricks fast enough. It seems to indicate some kind of physical harm to a pregnant woman. Now, Hagar, she can't stand the abuse, and so she runs away. And see what happens in verse 7 and following to her. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to shore. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I'm fleeing from my mistress, Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, Return to your mistress and submit to her. Angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. The angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, His hand against everyone, and everyone's hand against him. He shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. 
So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are a God of seeing. For she said, truly here I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore the well was called Beer Lahoi Roy. It lies between Kadesh and Bered. And Hagar bore Abram a son. And Abram called the name of his son, whom Hagar bore, Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. Grace comes to Hagar. Now these verses here present the first reference to the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament, where it occurs 48 times. In Genesis, it occurs six times. In this very chapter, it occurs four times. Now the precise relationship between the angel of the Lord and God himself is often puzzling. In some places, it appears clearly that this is the second person of the Trinity, Jesus, in some pre-incarnate appearance. We see that clearly in the book of Joshua, where Joshua faces the walls of Jericho and Jesus himself comes. In other places, it looks simply like a heavenly messenger being sent from the heavenly court as God's personal agent. Either way here, God is coming after Hagar. This is remarkably the only known instance in all of ancient Near Eastern literature where the angel of the Lord addresses a woman by name. God is extending grace to her. He hears her pain and her voice, that voice that was silent in her heart. It's a sweet text. God knows her name. He knows her occupation. He knows her hope. He knows it all. The very God who created the whole world knows this maidservant in the middle of the desert. This is incredibly encouraging to us. You may often feel like an insignificant person in the middle of a desert. But God knows you. And he has numbered every hair on your head. And in verse 9, God comes to this maidservant in the desert. And he tells her to go back to Sarai. Now why does he do that? Wasn't it an abusive relationship? Well, yes, but God is telling her that I'll protect you and I'll make your son a great nation. As a single mother out in the middle of the desert, she was ruined. She would probably die. She needed protection. And so God says, go back. I have this in control, and I'll bless you. And so she goes back. And we see in chapter 21 that she actually gets sent out later. So it means that in this instance, she listened to God. She went back to Abram and Sarai. She listened to and trusted in the voice of the Lord and not the voice of this world. Hagar listened to the Lord, and she went back. It's interesting that this is also the only instance in the Bible where a human being is represented as confirming a name on God. Hagar gives God a name that expresses his special significance to her. She responds to the person, not the promise, and she no longer gloats that she's pregnant, but she marvels at the Lord's care for her. The name she gives God means God of my seeing. She realizes that there in the middle of that desert that God sees her. That God notices her. God knows her. And she gives birth to a son named Ishmael, which means God has heard. It's very sound, commemorated God's remembrance of Hagar and her oppression. Whenever she murmured or sang about the baby and to her baby, she would commemorate this event. Even when he was so difficult 
And she had to shout his name, Ishmael. She would recall God's caring intervention in her life. Now, he would be a wild donkey of a man, the text says, probably meaning he would live an individualistic lifestyle. He would be wild. He would be a free wanderer, live in conflict with his surroundings. But God also promises to make this man a great nation. Grace comes to Hagar. Grace comes to this maidservant, but grace also comes to Abram and Sarai. Even after this traumatic and awful event, there's chapter 17. Chapter 16 goes downhill, but then grace again comes in 17. Let me read the entire chapter, beginning in verse 1. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. And God said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of people shall come from her. And then Abraham fell on his face, laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? Shall Sarah, who is ninety years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. And God said, No. But Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son. You shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. 
Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father twelve princes, and I will make him into a great nation. But I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. When he had finished talking with him, God went up from Abraham. And then Abraham took Ishmael his son, and all those born in his house or bought with his money, every male among the men of Abraham's house, and he circumcised the flesh of their foreskins that very day, as God had said to him. Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. And Ishmael, his son, was 13 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. That very day, Abraham and his son Ishmael were circumcised. And all the men of his house, those born in the house and those bought with money from a foreigner, were circumcised with him. Upon first glance, this chapter may not mean much to you, but it is very, very important. The bleakness of Abram and Sarai's shortcut attempt to obtain an heir through Hagar's is meant to provide the context and the spiritual background for the story of this covenant renewal in chapter 17. Now the interconnectedness of chapter 16 and 17 is shown by the last verse of chapter 16 and the first verse of chapter 17. We see in the last verse of 16 it indicated that Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to their family. Whereas the opening verse of chapter 17 emphasized that he's now 99 years old. So we see a gap there. 13 years goes by. Now Moses intends that the reader understand that for some 13 years, a cloud of domestic gloom and growing darkness about the promise had hung over the tents of Abram. Now that original promise was 25 years ago. They're getting older and older and older. And the years go by. And more years go by. Sarah's in her 90s. Abram, now Abraham, is about to celebrate his 100th birthday. And it's interesting, at that age, in the golden years of their lives, God gives them new names. It was a momentous act. In the near ancient world, a name was not merely a convenient means of identification, but it was intimately bound up with the very essence of your being and personality. The Bible also presents name giving as an exercise of sovereignty or lordship. And so when a baby is born, a parent or parents decide what that baby should be named. It'd be strange if on a Friday morning you have a new baby and I took that baby into my arms and I held that baby. And I had known that You had named that child Joshua, but instead in that moment, I decide, I declare as a pastor that that child shall now be named Stephen. Now you would think that I was crazy as a parent because I don't have authority to do that. But here God in renaming Abraham and Sarah, it was nothing less than a reassertion of his divine sovereignty over their lives. God changed their names. Abram had meant exalted father. But again, God in his grace, pointing to the promise, changes his name to Abraham, which means father of a multitude. A reminder of that covenant promise. Anytime someone said his name to him, anytime he introduced himself to someone and said, Hi, I'm Abraham, was nothing less than a reminder and a reiteration of God's promise to them. 
Again, this is God's grace to Abraham and Sarah. Now, God also gives us the first occasion where he calls forth his own name, El Shaddai. It means God Almighty. He tells them that I am God. I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. God is saying, I'm able to fulfill all the hopes that I set before you regarding both a people and a land. But God is saying, Abraham and Sarah, there's no need to let go of the promise because of your old age. There's no need to scale down this promise to match your small hopes. No need to try and fulfill the promise in any second-rate way. Everything, all of your life, all of your future lies in this. Abraham and Sarah, I am God Almighty. God clears that up and then proceeds to explain this covenant more fully in chapter 17. Again, more grace. It's a reiteration or an extension of the Abrahamic covenant we saw last week in Genesis chapter 15. The supplement of chapter 17 escalates the motif of land and descendants mentioned previously. The Lord commits himself forever to be the God of Abraham and his descendants in verse 7. And as their God to grant them the land of Canaan forever in verse 8. Now the promise to be their God entails that the descendants in view participate in that same covenant. God will make Abraham the father of a multitude of nations through numerous physical and spiritual progeny. Kings from his own body will rule the nations. Although in chapter 15, Abraham was a passive partner to whom God unconditionally committed himself. Here, in the supplement, God calls Abraham into active partnership. Just as Noah lived righteously, Abraham must walk before the Lord. Living in fellowship with him and being taught by him and to be blameless, living with integrity. Just because God has promised unconditionally doesn't mean that we go about living our lives in whatever way we want. We don't remain in sin. We live according to God. And the sign of this covenant was circumcision. Now, signs were attached to covenants as reminders of the participants' obligations and privileges under the covenant. So we see that in Genesis 9. Remember with Noah, when God promised never to destroy the world with a flood again, he put a rainbow in the sky. And he said, this rainbow is a sign of my covenant. Whenever you see that rainbow in the clouds, you'll remember that I will never, ever, ever destroy the world by flood It was a perpetual reminder of that promise. Well, in this chapter, circumcision, we see, was a sign of this old covenant. Now, this ritual isn't something that's saved. It was a sign to be performed by the people of the covenant as evidence of their participation in it. In the Jerusalem Council in Acts chapter 15, we we see that they made it clear that one didn't have to be circumcised to be saved see, the whole rest of the Bible attests to that. The book of Galatians, which we taught last spring, attested to that, to that. But it was a sign of the old covenant for believing Jews. The sign didn't mean anything if there wasn't faith. It was an outward display of an inward reality. Now, the sign of this covenant was, again, a reminder to God and the people of the promises God had made to provide the seed of Abraham. And it made sense that the sign was circumcision because the promise was a seed. Those making the covenant would have been reminded that human nature alone was unable to generate the promised seed if not for God. It would have also been reminded not to stray on their own to make the seed as Abraham and Sarah had messed up before. 
This would have reminded them that it's God's supernatural work. And so it was that all of this converged on Abraham's soul, and Father Abraham lived out the obedience of faith on that very day. Did you see that 99-year-old Abraham and 13-year-old Ishmael, and every male there was circumcised, that Abraham and all the men there acted in faith. It was the birthday of God's covenant people. And while we've seen Abraham's faith waver at times, Romans 4 is clear about his faith. It says, In hope he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old. And when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb, no unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith and he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That's interesting in those verses that being a hundred, Paul writes that he was as good as dead. He was old. It was going to take a miraculous birth. And though there were a few laughs along the way, Paul attests to the fact that Abraham believed. This belief that Abraham had begun was completed by his ultimate seed, Christ the King. The rite of circumcision itself is a reminder that covenants are solemnized through blood. It points to something even greater. The circumcision inflicts blood and pain. Every Hebrew male from Abraham to Isaac to Moses to Jesus underwent this operation. Every instance symbolized the enduring, irrevocable nature of the covenant. It was a reminder and a foreshadowing that one would come, Jesus, whose body was cut away for our sin. He was cut off from God for our sin there on the cross. Jesus, in perfect obedience, poured out his blood for us. It was pain and blood that Good Friday when Jesus was nailed to the cross and a new covenant was launched. Jesus underwent the ultimate circumcision of being cut off from God so that we might receive the circumcision of the heart, which comes through faith in Christ. Listen to what Paul says this means to us in Romans 2. He says, For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Well, friends, faith in Christ is the way to partake in this new covenant that Jesus Christ fulfilled in his death on the cross. So it's fitting today that as a community we take part in the Lord's Supper this morning. This is an ordinance that is given by God to the church and is to be practiced over and over again by Christians symbolizing that we continue to enjoy the benefits of Christ's death. It's a reminder that each Christian has been saved only by the broken blood and shed blood of Jesus. Now this morning as we reach out for the bread and as we reach out for the cup, it's a picture of our ongoing spiritual nourishment that comes from Jesus. That we've sinned against the Holy God, and yet Jesus Christ died on the cross for us, rescuing us from death and judgment. Now, communion is, in fact, a meal for Christians. But furthermore, it's for Christians who are trusting in Christ's righteousness and repenting. 
So if you claim to be a follower of Christ and you're holding on to some sin that you refuse to repent of, my friend, let the bread, let the cup pass you by this morning and turn to Christ. Now, I know some of you are sitting here this morning and you realize you've messed up. You've listened this morning to Abraham and Sarah's at times faithlessness and you realize that that's you. You've realized that you've engaged in inappropriate relationships or you've engaged in inappropriate immoral tasks. Friend, I want you to know that it's not too late to come to Christ. Now, the good news is that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. If you come to him, he'll enjoy sweet fellowship with you, just like he did with Abraham. He'll love you and protect you and watch over you. Oh, friend, don't make actions worse by resisting God and remaining in your sin. Repent. Repent and turn to him. Turn to God. I mean, consider the grace that God extends to Abraham in chapter 18. I'd encourage you to read through those first 15 verses and 18 later today. But it's remarkable that God does a covenant renewal there with Abraham. And then in chapter 18, God actually comes to Abraham and dines with him. Enjoys fellowship with him. And again, regarding the birth of the promised child, God says to Abraham over a meal, Is anything too hard for the Lord? Is anything too difficult for me? God tells him. And the answer is no. Regardless, friend, of the sin that you find yourself in today, regardless of your past, regardless of what you've been engulfed in and immersed in, regardless of the darkness of your past, oh friend, nothing is too difficult for the Lord. He can forgive you, and he will forgive you if you come to Jesus. If you acknowledge today and you say, God, I have messed up, I have sinned, I have strayed away from you, I have turned away, I have turned to myself and to the world, and I have listened to the voice of this world, and I have rejected you. Oh, friend, if that's you, don't turn back to the world today. Instead, turn to Christ. Turn to Christ for salvation. Repent of your sin, place your faith in him, listen to and trust in the voice of the Lord and not the voice of this world. And use this time as the believing community takes part in communion. Use this time to consider this good news of Jesus. That friend, there is a way out. That without Jesus, we would all be dead and under judgment for eternity. But because of Jesus, there is a way out. And friend, I hope that today as we take part in communion, that you would ponder those words. But I do caution you and encourage you to let the bread and let the cup pass you by. For 1 Corinthians 11 gives us instruction and says, Whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. A man ought to examine himself before he eats of the bread and drinks of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord eats and drinks judgment upon himself. Now, before we take part, as we always do, we want to take a couple moments in silent reflection to look upon our lives and see if we would take part in communion in a manner worthy of the gospel. So let's take a moment of silent reflection now. Now, as the servers come up to the front and as the musicians 
make their way up front. Let us go to the Lord in prayer. Let's pray. Almighty and merciful Father, we have wandered from your ways like lost sheep. We have followed too much the desires of our own hearts. Please forgive us. Oh Lord, we give you thanks for the bread and the cup, these visible displays of the gospel. We remember today that Jesus lived and died for us. That he took the wrath of God that we deserved and instead has declared us righteous. Oh Father, we did not deserve your relentless pursuit of rebels. Hard for us to imagine how Christ should be killed instead of us. How for a time he was cut off from God the Father so that we would not. Father, your mercy is unfathomable. So now as we approach the table, it is with great anticipation and much joy that we partake of this table now. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.